Jeremiah 31, while we are preaching in Galatians in the New Testament, we are reading out of the Old, and Craig is going to come and read it for us. Craig, if you would. Jeremiah 31, starting at verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. We are continuing our sermon series in the book of Galatians, and how very helpfully Galatians was extremely important in the Reformation, particularly important to Martin Luther. And so it's timely that we're studying this book, thinking a lot about how does God save, what what does gospel faith look like as compared to a a works-based righteousness. Uh, As you can see, we are in uh, the middle of Galatians 4. Uh, And before we preach, Cody's going to come and read it for us. Cody, if you would. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn your back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, and they want want (laughs) that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, I wish I could present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. All right, we're going to spend some time uh, reflecting on this text together. Most of the time, uh, when you greet someone you know, you ask a question something like, how are you doing? Uh, To which the uh, acceptable answer, (laughs) or the common answer, is fine, good, all right, maybe. Now, sometimes our tone betrays uh, the real state of affairs, but most of us have these knee-jerk responses to that initial sort of question when you see a, a friend or an acquaintance on the street. But imagine you had been given some sort of truth serum. Someone slipped it into your morning coffee this morning, your morning tea. And when you arrived at church today, you answered everyone extremely honestly. You come up to the outside door at the same time as a loose acquaintance, someone you've met in previous weeks at church. They say good morning. They say, how are you? 
And truth serum to you responds, well, I stayed up way too late on my phone and now I'm grouchy. Or uh, my kids kicked the back of my seat in my car all the way to church and I just yelled really loudly at them and frankly, my heart rate is still elevated. I'm not sure we're ready for that kind of honesty. And by the way, it isn't just for all of you normal, all average, regular people, and that's not insult, just that you're normal. It, it, it extends to pastors as well. What if I was more honest than inspected, and instead of my usual welcome that I give at the beginning of services, what if I said, today I feel mostly afraid and confused? It's probably a little bit more honesty than is typical, yet... This is precisely how the Apostle Paul speaks to the Galatians. With kind of surprising pastoral honesty, if you look in verse 11, Paul tells them he's afraid. He's afraid for them. He's afraid that all his work, all his labor is for nothing. And down in verse 20, he tells them he's perplexed. He's confused. He's at his wit's end. He doesn't know what to do with them. He doesn't know why they are doing what they are doing. He feels out of solutions. It's pretty vulnerable. Apostle Paul says he's afraid and he's perplexed as a pastor. He's worried that everything he's done for them, everything he's poured into them is slipping away. And in light of that fear, in light of that confusion, that perplexity, I don't know if that's a word, but Paul teaches them some important distinctions that'll kind of form our outline this morning. So I have two parts. First, we're going to talk about worldly religion versus gospel faith. That's kind of the first couple of verses there you'll see. And then he talks about worldly ministry and gospel ministry. He distinguishes between the kinds of ways that he versus these other people are ministering. And I think it's worth recalling that a lot of the, the key words in verses 8 through 10 were also used in verses 1 through 7. It's what Randy preached on last week. There are ideas here about uh, enslavement and elementary principles, and that all came up last week. So if you want a fuller picture of it, honestly, you'll have to go listen to it. I'm not going to spend a lot of time there. But Paul begins in verse 8 with a reference to the before times of the Galatians. He says, you know, do you remember what you were doing before? And the Galatians would have been mainly Gentile believers, which meant that when the gospel message came to them, they would have been probably some sort of polytheists. They would have believed in many gods. If you're aware, the Romans had a whole pantheon of gods, of course, ruled by Jupiter. It's a rough equivalent for Zeus. And there are all kinds of lesser gods, lesser goddesses. Mars, you know, the god of war, Minerva, the goddess who protected women, so on and so forth. And of course, beyond the Roman pantheon, many other minor religions flourished in the Roman Empire as well. So what lots of people would do is that they would select their favorite god, their favorite goddess, and they'd center their religious life, their devotion, their worship around that deity. And so if they chose Mars, they'd be captivated by this idea of war and violence and conquering, and they'd structure, or they would structure their life around the, the, god, the worship of the god of, of, of Bacchus, god, you know, god of wine and feasting. So when you think of, of these Roman gods and goddesses, you can probably see how they're, they're kind of rough stand-in for a lot of the things people pursue today. Pleasure, power, love, happiness, etc. But whether you worship the Roman god Bacchus or you simply pursue a life of feasting and drinking and, and, and pleasure, the result is the same. Paul says in verse 8, you end up enslaved to that thing. Now, that seems a little strong. Even if one might recognize, well, there are edge cases, you know, where people get addicted, you know, drugs, alcohol, whatever. It doesn't seem, doesn't feel like when you look around that, that people are enslaved to anything. But I think I would argue, and I think what the Apostle Paul would argue, is that it's just harder to see. The old Roman gods, they were much more obvious. But conquering today probably has less to do with war and more like being obsessed with, with business achievement or business advancement. 
And even if parts of business achievement and advancement are fine, if you're on that treadmill, how easy, easy is it to stop? Can you get off that ride if you want to? Or it, why is it that we go from one social media platform to the next looking for likes or hearts or retweets or whatever it gives you, external validation of some kind to make you feel good about yourself? Can you stop even if you wanted to? I think what Paul's arguing in verse 8 is everyone worships. Everyone gets tangled up in something. And the Galatians in their former life were tangled up with these Roman gods, but the modern gods we have of money and success, achievement, beauty, etc. They're not much different. But then Paul does this wonderful gospel jujitsu move. I don't know anything about jujitsu, but let's pretend it works. If you skip the first part of verse 9, Paul says they are in danger of turning back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world to become slaves again. Now, importantly, are are the Galatians in danger of turning back to pagan gods and goddesses? No. They, the, whole part of, the whole thing about Galatians is they're in danger of turning to biblical legalism. And with, like a lot of Galatians tells us that, but if you look at verse 10, it says, oh, you Galatians, you're observing days and months and seasons and years. And you inwardly gasp, because I observe days and months and seasons and years. It's October 29th, 2023, in the autumn or whatever. But that's not what Paul means. Paul means they are observing the, the feasts and festivals of the Jewish calendar. They're returning to this observance of, of, of the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Passover and so on. They are living by the law, not living by faith, trusting in the law, not trusting in Christ. So Paul, we know Paul was warning them about the danger of turning to biblical legalism. So if you kind of put this together, the earlier comments about their former enslavement uh, and, and, the, and this stuff now about turning back to it, here is what Paul is trying to argue. He is arguing that biblical legalism the earning of one's salvation by obedience to the law, that's as worthless, it's as enslaving as worshiping uh, Quetzalcoatl, the god of the Aztecs, who demanded human sacrifice. There's no functional difference between the two. There's obvious differences, but no functional difference because both enslave, both are weak, both are worthless worldly religions. Now that shocks us because that's not how we think. We intuitively rank the religions on, on the ones that are most repulsive or most wrong to us and, and other ones that are, are less repulsive and less wrong, and we picture them on a spectrum or a hierarchy of some kind, and therefore we say, if, you're, if your uh, religion sacrifices humans, that's really bad, you know, that's somewhere down near the bottom. But imagine you had two daughters, and both are in their 20s, both have gone away to university or college somewhere else, and both get involved in strange new religions. And one comes back and tells you, uh, I'm thinking about worshiping the Norse gods, making sacrifices to Freya and Odin. And you're like, okay, that's, you know, whatever. And then the other daughter comes back and says, well, I'm considering converting to Judaism. I'm observing kosher food rules. I'm going to attend the festivals. I'm building a little, you know, a booth in my backyard. Which are you more worried about? Now, the answer is intuitive, but in the, in the landscape of the Bible, Paul is arguing they're equal because they both enslave, they're both useless for earning God's favor. And I'm not trying to offend any of you who might be Jewish by religious practice or trying to offend any of you who might worship Norse gods. I'm just trying to say, this is what the point Paul is trying to make. The basic principle of every world religion is save yourself, every man or woman for himself. Whether you bow down at the altar of Zeus or YouTube or the Old Testament festivals and feasts, it doesn't matter. All of them are opposed to the gospel. 
And I might go so far as to say, biblical legalism is actually more dangerous than the pagan religions because biblical legalists don't always realize they've left the gospel behind. They're slower to recognize the danger they are in because their religion is just a few degrees off of Christianity. Christianity, of course, grew out of Judaism. The Aztecs, the worshipers of Aphrodite, they knew they were different. The Judaizers, you know, not so much. And, and Paul obviously does not know or does not think the Galatians are aware of the danger they are in. This is the worldly religion that Paul warns them about. Both the one they left behind and then the one uh, that they are flirting with now. And in contrast, Paul says in verse 9 that the Galatians have come to know God. Now, whenever you see the word know in the Bible, it means more than intellectual knowledge. It means to be in relationship with, to be close to. Actually, in the Old, in the Old Testament, it's used as a, as a euphemism for sexual activity. When the Galatians came to know God, Paul means they began a relationship with God. They got close to God. They communed with God. But as is true in any good and healthy relationship, it's not one directional. It wasn't just that the Galatians were loving God while he was largely indifferent to them. No, while they were loving God and knowing God, God was knowing them. The relationship has two sides. There is movement in both directions. And in fact, God knew them long before the Galatians ever knew, uh, ever knew him. Maybe think of it this way. Imagine a father and mother in an orphanage standing over the crib of a, a little baby girl that they are set to adopt. Before this little girl knows anything about the world, she will begin to experience the love, the care, the provision that her adopted parents will provide. They have set their love on her, and they are going to know all about her. They will know how she likes to be swaddled. Does she like her arm in or out? You know, what does she like to eat? What all the different cries mean? They, are, they will know her. They will love her. And as all parents do, they'll hope and they'll pray that one day this little girl will love them back. She will choose of her own accord uh, to know them, to be in relationship with them. Now, but from the daughter's perspective, as she grows up, it feels like she is coming to know her parents. Even though the love of the parents came first, we can know as third-party observers of the situation, we know it came first, even though the knowledge of the parents came first. It, to the daughter, it feels like, oh, I'm choosing to love my parents. But whose love would we rate as stronger? Whose love has endured more? And whose love began the relationship in the first place? Well, it's the parents, of course. And it's hard to imagine the love your parents have for you, really, until you begin to have children of your own. But so, too, the love of God. What really holds us in Christianity is not that we know God, but that he knows us. What keeps you here, what keeps me here, week in and week out, is not just that we are trying to aim our love at God and, and trying to get to God, but rather that a much greater and more profound love is aimed backward at us. As we say when we baptize children, the gospel is proved true by what? Not that we first loved God, but that God first loved us, even as babies. God knew us and loved us. And in this way, gospel faith stands in contrast to the ways of worldly religion. Worldly religion declares, save yourself. The gospel declares, salvation has come to you. Worldly religion says, every man for himself. But the gospel says, no, no, one man has died for all, therefore all might live. By finding salvation through the law, by attempting to find salvation through the law, the Galatians are in danger of abandoning the gospel for just another worldly religion. And because of this, Paul is afraid. Paul is afraid. 
He's afraid for them. He's worried his labor is in vain. This is a worry of Christian parents everywhere, Christian pastors, Christian elders, Christian small group leaders. And that's where I want to turn next to, kind of a discussion of these relationships. It's part two. Worldly ministry versus gospel ministry. So Paul has contrasted worldly religion and gospel faith, so he applies it to ministry. But let's begin with this. What characterizes worldly ministry? Look at verse 17. They, that's referring to the Judaizers, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. So on one hand, these false teachers are sort of flattering the Galatians. They're pumping them up full of false hope or false bravado. They're telling them how well they're doing, how mature they are, when it's not really true. It's for no good purpose, which means that there's maybe a sinful end or a selfish end uh, to these Judaizers making much of the Galatians, which is, by the way, not to, not to uh, uh, disparage legitimate encouragement. As Paul says in verse 18, it's always nice to be made much of for a good purpose. It's always nice. But this is not that. Paul says there's no good purpose. And if there was a purpose, the only one would be, still in verse 17, so that the Galatians will make much of these teachers. So their purpose is ultimately selfish. They want the Galatians as their disciples. They want the Galatians to pump up the prestige of their ministry. So in this strange way, sometimes the Judaizers are making much of the Galatians, flattering them. But then at other times, Paul says they kind of shut them out. They give them the cold shoulder. They keep them out of the, 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 the circles of power and influence. But what does all this mean? Well, I think it gives us some warning signs of what a worldly ministry looks like. I'll give you three. The first warning sign is this. There are, so, there are weird push-pull dynamics between the leadership and the people. If you feel like you are being jerked around by the leaders of a, of, of a ministry, constantly wondering where you stand with them, if one week you are sort of the golden child and praised, and the next week you are the prodigal outcast, that's a bad sign. Second, any encouragement, in quotes, that comes from the leader seems designed to get you to do something else. If every time they praise your musical gifts, that leads to a request that you play more, you be on the schedule more, off, more often, something is off with that. Encouragement is an end in itself. It's not supposed to be leveraged to get people to do more. And the third warning sign of, of a worldly ministry, and perhaps the most important, if the ministry is centered around, around the building up of a leader, not the building up of the body as a whole, that's a major red flag. When a lot of the news about Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill Church in Seattle finally came out, one of the things we found out was that the church had paid for thousands of copies of one of Driscoll's books so that it would make the bestseller rankings. So they used church funds, tithe money, offering money, for the building of Driscoll's platform so that there could be a title after his name that he apparently wanted. Now, rarely do we see that phenomenon quite so clearly, but the church, in some ways at least, was there for Mark Driscoll, not the other way around. The question we ought to be asking when we're trying to figure out, is this ministry legitimate? Is it spiritually healthy? We can ask this question. Does this ministry treat people the way that God treats us in Jesus Christ? Because God does not jerk us around, one day promising us love and favor, while the next day sort of icing us out and making us perform. God is the same day after day. His love endures. God doesn't give us false encouragement, but speaks to us with grace and truth. His love is not aimed at making us do more for him. And of course, God has already set his love on us for our sake, not so that he can have a greater platform for himself. We speak of God's sufficiency. He has everything he needs. He doesn't need anything from you. 
His love for us is for our sake, not for his sake. But in Galatia, Paul is saying this ministry has gotten twisted. It's become worldly. It's become far from what it was intended to be. So if that is the picture of unhealthy, selfish, worldly ministry, what does gospel ministry look like? Let's look at verse 12. Paul says here that gospel ministry is intended to be culturally flexible. He says his ministry among the Gentiles laid down this principle for how Christian leaders ought to behave. Paul says, I became as you are. I became like you. And he says this a lot of times in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 9, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law that I might win those outside the law. And what Paul means, he's saying, I did what I could to get close to the people I was trying to reach. As long as I didn't compromise the gospel, but I wanted to understand these Galatians, their hopes, their dreams, their fears, what they want out of life. There is a cultural flexibility to gospel ministry where the minister ought to adapt himself to the people, not the other way around. The minister adapts or gives the people not what he thinks they should want, but what they actually need. Now, sometimes cultural flexibility is obvious, like wearing the traditional clothes of a place or learning a new language. But I think if we minister in a place similar to where we grew up, which is true of me, we ought to be especially careful to consider how do we, how do I, how do we become like those we minister to? There must be a flexibility to gospel ministry. Second, gospel ministry should encourage and exhort. We had a discussion at my small group this past week about the difference between encouragement and exhortation. One of those classic small group arguments. What is the difference? What do they mean? Maybe you two sit around wondering at the difference. Uh, in my opinion, the difference is this. Encouragement says, this thing about you, or this thing about what you did, is great. And I love it. Excellent. Exhortation, on the other hand, says, here is where you are right now. That's great. But keep going. There's more ahead for you. And gospel ministry, I think Paul is arguing here, gives both of these depending on the situation. Paul gives them some legitimate encouragement. He reminds them that even though he had this ailment or even a disfigurement, a disability of some kind perhaps, when he first preached to them, the Galatians received him gladly. And it's, he even says his condition caused them problems. We don't even know what it was, but he says they accepted him like they would an angel. And Paul says, that was great work. You know, two thumbs up. That, that, that was a picture of the grace of God. That, so he's giving them legitimate encouragement. But he also is saying, there is more for you. You need to go on. Look in, back in verse 12, Paul says he wants them to become as he is. That as, that's not cultural. He doesn't want them all to become apostles. He wants them to become like him who is free from the law's constraints. He wants freedom for them. He wants more for them. He wants them to go on to maturity in their faith. And another exhortation in 15 and 16, he wants them to return to the way they were before. He wants them to, to become those gracious, long-suffering people they were when he first preached to them. And he kind of wonders aloud, what, what became of this commendable, this blessed behavior? Gospel ministry, faithful gospel ministry, sometimes encourages you, points out, look at all the growth that's happened, look at all these good things that have been done. But other times, gospel ministry ought to exhort you and point out, there are things that lie ahead. There's ground still to be covered. There's good things you need to return to doing. There's this great uh, truth and grace element to faithful gospel ministry. The third component of gospel ministry, I think, is perhaps the most important, though I hesitate to rank them. 
but it's that the goal of gospel ministry is the formation of Christ in the people it serves. Look at verse 19. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. It's an extraordinary statement. Somehow seminary glossed over the fact that pastoral ministry should feel something like giving birth. It wasn't a popular metaphor for some reason in seminary. But a few things I want to point out about this metaphor. First is, there is indeed anguish. As a man, as a husband, as a father, I know this anguish obviously only secondhand. By observation, not by experience. Childbirth is pain, but it's sort of deeper than pain. It's effort, but it's also a deeper and more profound kind of effort. It's focus, but it's more focus than you've ever had to focus on anything in your entire life. And gospel ministry also involves pain. Uh, it's, it's a little difficult to describe to you what it's like to watch people... Sorry. It's hard to describe what it's like to watch people you love wreck their lives. As a pastor, you, you know more about the sin of others sorry, than you'd ever want to. And you get invited into the most beautiful and profound parts of people's lives. <sighs> Weddings, babies, even funerals. But you also show up when sin is ripping apart marriages and families and jobs and churches. And there is a certain kind of powerlessness to being a minister because all you have is the gospel. You have ministerial power, but that's not really very concrete. You can't make anyone do anything. And at times there is profound anguish, a weird kind of internal pain and like a mother, there are, there are parts about it that you get to control, but mostly you're just operating on someone else's timetable. They'll come when they're ready. So there's, there's profound pain, weird kinds of pain to gospel ministry. But there's also childbirth. I mean, what does a mother in labor want more than anything else? You can ask any of the mothers here. They want that baby out. They want the baby from the inside to the outside. They want the baby in their arms, you know, not not in their, in their stomach. What is a healthy gospel minister? What, what should they want more than anything else? They should want Christ to be formed in those they minister to. Not themselves, not their own ideas, not their own vision for what the church could become, but, but the, the very character and behavior of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember what the Judaizers want? They wanted to be made much of. They want disciples who look like them, and what does Paul want? And what should all healthy gospel ministers want? They should want disciples that look like Christ. Now, that's hard. <laughs> As a minister, I can say, it's hard to get to that stage because we think, I got some pretty good ideas of what mature Christians should look like. And usually, suspiciously, it looks a lot like us. But what we should want and what we hope to want and what we do want when our, our heads are sort of screwed on straight is not for people who look like Ben, look like us, but for people who look like Jesus. That's what they should want. Now, what's the secret to all of this? The secret is this. Ministers, people, everyone, we all need the same thing. 
We all need to believe in the gospel. It saves us from worldly religion. It saves them, it saves people from being biased against a minister because of a condition or a disfigurement or a disability they might have. If the gospel comes to us all freely, then all of you ought to welcome any minister in the same way you have been welcomed by Christ. But the gospel is also for all of the ministers themselves. How can you become a small group leader increasingly concerned that Christ grow in the members of your group? You have to have a changed heart. You have to become a different kind of small group leader. How do you become a Sunday school teacher or just a Christian friend who really labors for the maturity of another only by the power of the risen Christ in your heart? That's the only way. In the gospel, we see the Lord Jesus Christ groaning on our behalf, not in childbirth, of course, but in his death. He went through all of the anguish that we might be spared only the anguish of our sins and be freed to minister to the others. So would you, would I, would all of us believe this gospel and live by it? Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we long to be people who are not enslaved to anything, but are free to live for you, to believe the gospel, to live by it, to teach it to others, to commend it to all, all those around us. Please help us. This is such an incredibly difficult thing to do, day to day, week to week. Would you empower us? May the Holy Spirit fill our hearts that we might do all that is commanded in this text for your glory. And it's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.